All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick! So, Parth, what have you been eating? Trent, my boy. It's nice to see you. My podcasting host, my brother. Oh, okay. Was that a bit much? Should I? Okay. Um, You could have stopped at podcasting host. Friend. Classmate. There There are a lot of things we are. But just look at us, Parth. Brothers? I had some Lucky Charms. Uh, we were going to record, and all I'd had was a glass of milk, some Choco Choco milk. Um, Short for chocolate milk. Yeah, uh, I shortened chocolate to Choco Choco. Which is probably is more letters and probably and, more and time. And more syllables. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, I, but it, I think it makes me cool or sound a little cool. But um, yeah, so we were going to record, and I was like, I technically haven't eaten anything. I'm going to take... A handful of these delicious Lucky Charms. Great. Very professional. What's that alarm for, huh? My laundry. Um, so. Putting your laundry above the podcast. All it's, right. It's interesting. I was I was saying we could just edit that out. I could restart. But um, no, you want to make it part of the no, whole. No, no. The, the fans deserve to know the truth. That, uh, j- j- just what you think of them. Yeah, so I took a handful of delicious Lucky Charms, put those marshmallow and cereal bits and pieces into my mouth, crunched them on my way here, mm-hmm. and um, Trent, punctual as usual, was uh, five minutes away from actually joining. So, yeah. What yeah, do you if, have? Of time through to make fun of my punctuality, I was only five minutes late today when my standard lateness is like upwards of 15 minutes so much so that i had a friend in high school who kept a notes section in his phone called the trent tardiness differential where he would list the time that i said that i would come to the place and then the time that i actually arrived Hmm. which is your favorite of the lucky charms i i know that the like tan bits that the non-marshmallow parts are essentially just cheerios but not honey, much, yeah. not honey. I, I feel like they're sweeter though, aren't they? Probably because there's so much like excess sugar kicking mm-hmm. around. Would you ever it. eat those independently, or are the marshmallows the crux of that? I mean, like if I go to have Lucky Charms, I'm gonna want some marshmallow happening. But you're you're not the unique type of crazy person to order the just marshmallows like box off Amazon. No, because that sounds like madness and a cavity machine. Yes. Yes, it does. I I think you can only appreciate the beauty of the marshmallow in juxtaposition to the blandness of the uh, of the of the Cheerio of it all. Trent, you're you're a smart fellow, and I agree with everything that's that's been said. Now, you're making me curious what as to what you've consumed. Yeah, I'm not sure if this breaks any rules to the pod, but and oh, being no. and being it's past noon, it's not particularly oh, socially acceptable. Could it be? I've eaten nothing. Is this a first? I, it's a first. You Usually I'll jam something in my pie hole last second just to, just to keep you busy. Keep talking about your pie hole. Yeah, but my pie hole's currently empty. It's, uh, you know, I, I have big plans for what might come next, but uh, the show is about what you've eaten in the past tense. Not what, mm. not what you've got, not what you've got lined up. That's true. Not to get too off topic, but it's the fiftieth episode spectacular. Should we should we just move right in, move right along, let the people hear what they want to hear? Yeah, let's just put all the people who said 
that we wouldn't get to 50 episodes on blast um fuck you guys we did it Welcome back to Craft Services, our 50th episode spectacular. We did it. Go us. Against all the odds, against all the adversity, the obstacles, 25, well, how many interviews is it? Because it's like I think it, we've done 23. I think this is our 23rd. And so I guess that means we have 27 discussions out there. Something like that. Anyways. Uh, welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. This is our film podcast. Thanks for coming. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week we spoke with second unit director of our film for this week, Army of Darkness, Doug Leffler. And Parth, um, it says here in my notes that he was a delightful man and very insightful. Is that correct? This is one of my favorite interviews we've ever done. I'd say partially because we're now only one degree of separation away. From Sam Raimi. From Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell. Yes. And we found out uh, that, to put it lightly, our boy, Doug Leffler, to some level, inspired Edgar Wright. It's true. You get to hear some, uh, uh, quite a few interesting stories. You hear how he was fired by Sony Pictures on while working on Spider-Man. Yeah, political movie Hollywood mayhem. There are some juicy anecdotes in this one, boys and girls at home. He's He was uh, Brad Bird's roommate. You know, the guy that directed some movies like uh, The Incredibles, The Iron Giant. What school did he go to? It was the CalArts. Uh, you know, he was only in like their first year. Yeah, no, let's go back to the part where he was roommates with Brad Bird. Because that's awesome. Brad Bird wasn't on our show, but his college roommate Doug Leffler was. And that's pretty cool, too. Indeed. Well, we don't want to give too many of the bits away, and this is a long interview, so we are just going to... Trent, do you want to just lead us right in? Yeah, so um, listen to the entirety of the episode, or else there will be consequences. If you turn us off early, Parth and I will know. What happens to you next... It's it, it's in your I, hands. I feel no need to comment on it, but it could be grisly and destructive, and it could have something to do with Parth and I coming to your house and destroying you. Um, at the Trent end, of Peter the- from Legal is here. Uh, can you just get us in? I have to deal with him. All right. Listen. Yeah, we'll reveal what comes next at the end of the episode. So listen to it. Thanks. All right. Goodbye. Enjoy. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Doug Leffler. He's worked on such projects as Spider-Man, The Avengers, Godzilla vs. Kong, and was the second unit director for our film for today, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, what was your relationship with film at a young age? I was once in a restaurant in Auckland, uh, New Zealand, with two other directors, and the subject came up, what was the film that inspired you to get into the movie industry. Uh, And one of the other directors said Citizen Kane, and the other one said Lawrence of Arabia. And I Mm. said, one million years BC, 
with Brock Welch and Stop Motion by Ray Harryhausen. Went to see that film at a drive-in with my dad. And afterwards, I said, Dad, how did they make those dinosaurs? And he said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I had heard those words come out of his mouth. So I became obsessed with learning how they did that. And uh, this was a long time ago. <laughs> we didn't have the internet. And getting information like that was uh, hard-earned. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps because of that, it was precious and I wanted to maximize on it. So I had wanted to be Ray Harryhausen for quite a long time. And I did a lot of stop motion animation you know, when I was in high school. Somewhere when in my my mid-teens, uh, I actually got to meet some, uh, some stop motion animators like uh, Jim Danforth and David Allen. Uh, and this was in the pre-Star Wars days. And most of these guys were out of work. And I decided that I wanted to not focus on executing the visual effects or, or doing stop motion animation myself, but on planning planning it out and to work more in the area of story. Because it seemed like most of the films of that time that failed, failed more from bad story than they did from bad visual effects. Mm-hmm. So we read that you went to California Institute of the Arts and mm-hmm. we... We were wondering how that came to be, and we also were wondering how you ended up at Disney from there. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting turn of events. I was making films when I was a teenager, as I said. Uh, I had a group of people, uh, friends in high school. We formed a production company called Paragon Productions. There were five of us originally, and it kind of got, you know, winnowed down to four of us. We had an opportunity to go to an art teacher's convention at the Disneyland Hotel uh, in Anaheim. And there were people from what was then called Wed Enterprises that were giving discussions on theme park design. And I cornered John Hench, who is the vice president of WED, and told him that we were making films and persuaded him that we deserve to get a tour of WED. Uh, WED Enterprises now is called Disney Imagineering, but it, oh, wow. it was then and is now the division of Disney that designs the theme parks. So we, uh, John Hench said, we'll call my, my assistant on Monday, we'll set something up. So I did. Uh, we got uh, rescheduled a tour. My friends and I drove down there. They gave us a tour of the model shop, which was really inspiring for a bunch of high school kids. And afterwards, uh, John Hinch's assistant was taking us back out to the parking lot. We said, we brought our movies with us. We are eight millimeter films. Would you like to see them? And he said, oh, I'd love to. Now, this guy had already given up an hour and a half of his day to us. Mm-hmm. He said, but we don't have an eight millimeter projector. So that was a kind of a graceful way of getting out of it. Unfortunately, it didn't work because we had brought an eight millimeter projector with us. So he got stuck. Good planning. We set up the projector in the conference room. Um, it was at a time when some of the show designers were leaving to go home and some of them stopped to see what we were showing. <laughs> these kids showing these eight millimeter films. Some of them had stop motion animation. Uh, what they lacked in budget, they made up for in ambition. <laughs> And I think creative storytelling. And one of those uh, show designers was a guy named Exitensio. And he put a call to Walt Disney Pictures, to the animation department, after that. Uh, And about a week later, my mom came to tell me that there was a man on the phone from Walt Disney who wanted to talk to me. At first, I said, you sure is not one of my friends playing a joke on me? And she said, he sounds very serious. So... 
and got on the phone with Ed Hansen. He said, so why did you take your films to show to Red and you didn't come show them to us at Disney Animation? I didn't know Ed at that time and I wasn't familiar with his sometimes misplaced sense of humor. Uh, so I didn't really know how to respond to that, but I did get to know him later. It, so he invited us to come back. We went back, we showed our films to Disney and uh, some weeks later we got all four of us separately got calls. Disney was setting up this new program at California Institute of the Arts. Walt Disney, after the, he first created Disneyland, he began to lose interest in animated films. He was just more interested in the theme park that was newer to him. And he felt like he had kind of done everything in animation he wanted to do. But the animated films continued to make money. And so some executive there uh, realized that in order to keep that particular cash cow alive, they were going to need to get new talent. Mm -hmm. So they decided that they were going to fund this program at California Institute of the Arts. They were already giving money to CalArts for the things, so they thought they should get something out of it. So they had funding. Uh, they had teachers that were all ex-Disney employees. What they needed was students. So they were looking for students. And so they reached out to people who had come to their attention. So I was uh, invited to submit a portfolio. At that time, I had no intention of working in, in 2D animation, but I did uh, obviously have an interest in animation from doing stop motion. And I loved art. I always drew. And most importantly, I, my life's ambition at that time was to someday work for a film studio. So when somebody from a film studio called, I said, sure, I'll send a portfolio in. So I did. I still wasn't thinking I was going to go, but then I got a, about a month later, uh, Jack Cannon was the head of that program, called me up and said, well, we reviewed your portfolio. It wasn't the best portfolio we got, but it was pretty high up there. So we're going to give you a, a full scholarship. Whoa. Wow. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to college. <laughs> so um, I went to California Institute of the Arts and I was in the very first class they had there. It was kind of a famous class. Um, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> We've heard. Vanity Fair did a story about, uh, about our program, about our class. I think it was in March 2014 issue or something. In my career, I've, uh, I have been a screenwriter, a producer, a director, a storyboard artist, an illustrator, a sculptor, many other things, but in my, amongst my classmates, I consider myself an underachiever. I was in that program for two years, and at the end of the second year, my former roommate, who was this guy named Brad Bird, mm. uh, came and said, you, John Musker, Jerry Reese, and I are wanted in the dean's office. And I said, are we in trouble? Brad said, I think they're going to offer us jobs at, at the studio. And I said, Brad, you're, you're crazy. They're going to offer John and Jerry jobs, but they're not going to offer you and I jobs. But Brad was right and I was wrong. And um, they offered us jobs. And so we were the first four people hired by Disney out of that program. So it was John Musker, Jerry Reese. John Musker, who's directed seven animated features, along with Ron Clemens, like Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Hercules and Treasure Planet and Moana, uh, Princess and the Frog. Uh, Jerry Reese did uh, Brave Little Toaster and The Marrying Man. Brad, he's done a couple of films. I have to look him up. Tonight. He's su some guy. I, I think he made it. So you, you mentioned being a storyboard artist, and you have a lot of credits in that regard. So we were wondering how you became involved with doing storyboards for movies. 
I segued from animation uh, when I got hired at Disney. But first of all, I, I, as I mentioned, my life's ambition was to someday work for a film studio. And so mm. here I was, I had just turned 20 and I had fulfilled my life's ambition. So I realized that I had to retool my my program. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to remain a, a 2D animator for the same reasons I didn't want to be, become a 3D anim, or a stop motion animator. I wanted to segue into the story department, which I eventually did after a couple of years. And I worked on story for Fox and the Hound and on uh, Black Cauldron. But I also, eventually I felt like I needed to move out of animation, primarily because when you do story and animation, you're at least when I was doing it, we were doing one sequence at a time. So all I could do was the sequence. And I really felt like in order to grow, I needed to be able to have the responsibility of the entire structure of, of the whole story. And, and also, I just always wanted to work in live action. So I thought mm -hmm. if I didn't, if I didn't leave, I would just, that would become my career, which would have been, you know, a great career. I have lots of friends who stayed there and have become part of cinema history as a result of it. Uh, but I, I wanted to leave. <laughs> and I thought at the time, since I was doing uh, uh, animation storyboards, that the best way for me to segue into uh, live action was as a storyboard artist. To that end, I sought out um, a veteran story live action storyboard artist who was working at the studio at the time, and I asked if I could come talk to him. He was a guy that had started his career working for Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford. And when yes. I met him, he was doing some guys, some guy. When I met him, he was doing Herbie Goes Bananas. And he joked <laughs> that he had started his career at the top and, and had been working his way down ever since. And he said, if you want to do uh, live action storyboards, I'll tell you whatever I can to help you out. But I have to warn you before you do that it's a dead end job. If you become a live action storyboard artist, it will not lead to anything. Now, it, it pays pretty well. And, and, said, and I've always worked, but you just can't do anything else. When you'll, you'll be stuck doing this for the rest of your career. Uh, and when I left his office, I remember thinking, boy, I'm glad I talked to him before I made this horrible mistake. So when I left Disney, eventually, I was working as an illustrator and as a writer. Eventually, I... Somebody offered me a job doing storyboards uh, for a music video, for live action music video. And I thought this may be a big mistake, but I really needed the money. Yeah. And so I took it. And from the day I started doing that job professionally as a live action storyboard artist, uh, my experience was entirely different than this veteran who had advised me. I found I was working directly with the director, the first project, the director and the the DP. And I had a lot of input into the story, into the concept, into how things were being directed, and how the film was being made, and, and uh, what the story was going to be for. And I don't think that at, in any way that the veteran storyboard artist who had advised me had lied to me. That was his truth. Mm -hmm. And just as you know, film students now that are just entering the workplace, their truth is going to be different than mine. But my truth was different. And I think partially because I was, I'd love to draw and I've always drawn. I was always interested in storytelling and, and writing and I've always written as well. So I was bringing skills to the table that not all storyboard artists had perhaps, especially in, 
I was very serious about storytelling. I did a lot of studying of three act structure. I read, I read everything. I read comic books and Shakespeare and Ibsen and Shaw. I, I, I read anything I thought could, could help me learn how to tell a story better. As a result of that, I had a lot of opportunities. Uh, probably the most prominent among those opportunities was what happened when I uh, started working with Sam Raimi on Army of Darkness. Uh, how is that for a segue? <laughs> <laughs> that you you gave it to us on on a platter. Um, yeah, we were we were just about to ask you about how how did that trend? Because we read that interview where you uh, you were told that storyboarding was a dead end job. So how did that ultimately transition into getting what I believe was your first second unit directing gig on Army of Darkness? After that first job, uh, storyboarding the music video was a, sh- a music video for Chicago Stay the Night, I believe. Uh, I did a lot of other storyboarding and. And, and really enjoyed it. And then I was, I worked a couple of times for a company called IntroVision, which was a visual effects company that had this front projection system. So I understood how it worked just from wanting to be Ray Harry Hosen when I was a kid and understanding how rear projection worked. So I had worked for IntroVision a few times. And when they were beginning an army of darkness, they brought me in. They actually hired me to work with Sam and what they told Sam and Sam's producer, Rob Tappert, was that Intervision could do anything. It was like the best technique for visual effects that existed, and it could do anything. And then what they told me is, don't draw anything we can't do. Mm-hmm. And it was a strange situation because had I been hired by the producer and director, had I been hired by Sam to work on the film, probably the first thing I would have done was try to convince him he should go somewhere else to do the visual effects for this particular film. Now, front projection has its it, it, or had its advantages at that time. There were things it could do, but it certainly couldn't do everything. And, and nor could, can any visual effects uh, technique. You need to pick the best one for each job. But I was hired by Intervision to work on this and to make it as good as as possible. I got along with Sam Raimi. Uh, well, from from day one, we had similar sense of humor and work ethic, and because I I had such a, a strong interest in story, I often found myself restructuring parts of of the film. Uh, quite often, it was a third act, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. Just uh, screenplays aren't really good at third acts for some reason. The, especially if it's an if it's an action or visual effects film, a lot of times very good writers kind of forget what they know about writing when they when they start writing action. So I had previously on a number of films helped them by reworking their third acts, and I did that with Sam on Army of Darkness because Sam, besides being the director, he was also the writer along with his brother Ivan, and he recognized that there were some things that weren't working in the climax of the film, but he didn't know when he was going to have a chance to do a rewrite with the the rigorous pre-production schedule they had. So I offered, based on the conversations that he and I had, to try to do just a rewrite in the storyboard stage. So I restructured it, and I kept the, the, the stuff we both liked and tried to keep as many of the original lines of dialogue in, but I just restructured it so that we could kind of get inside the character's head more. We knew what Ash was hoping would happen. And, and when I presented it to Sam, Sam said, I he said, this is great. This is exactly what it should be. And I feel like I need to give you a writing credit for what you've done. Mm, wow. I said, uh, well, first of all, 
I was shocked because actually I didn't disagree with him, but nobody had ever even recognized that that's what I was doing before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I said that I thought that that wasn't necessary. And he said, well, how about if I uh, give you three days of second unit? Mm. And I said, that'll take. Uh, and then that three days became three weeks and, and, and I just became the second unit director. It's interesting that every directing job, that was the beginning of my directing career when I directed for about 15 years. And every directing job that I've had, someone has tried to take away from me at some point. And uh, which it happened for the first time on Army of Darkness. And I didn't realize how much I wanted to do the job, how much I wanted to try directing until somebody tried to take the job away. And at that time I said, well, that, uh, I can't remember if it was, a, I believe it was a producer that came to me and said that he was, wasn't going to be able to give it to me. He knew Sam wanted to give it to me, but he was going to have to give it to either the, the stunt coordinator or the visual effects supervisor. And without thinking about what I was going to say, <laughs> I said, that's a really stupid idea. And let me tell you why. And I did, when I started that sentence, I didn't know what the why was, but I said, I have drawn every shot for this film. I know how every piece fits together better than anybody with the possible exception of Sam Raimi himself. But probably I know it better than Sam because Sam has so many other concerns on his plate. I've only been focused on putting this uh, story together and planning how all of these shots are going to work. And I said, look, the visual effects are really important. The stunts are really important, but nothing's more important than the story. Mm -hmm. If I was a visual effects, the visual effects uh, producer or the stunt coordinator, I would have said something else. But that's just what I said based on what I had to work with. And I got to keep my job. As the second unit director, can you tell us which scenes you were tasked with shooting? Bits and pieces of a lot of things. One of Sam's favorite stories to tell, though, was how when we were doing the climax of the film, he was up on the parapet of the castle that we built in Acton, California, shooting a close-up with Bruce Campbell. And he looked over the wall and he saw me doing second unit of the armies charging the castle. And I had guys on horsebacks and stunts and puppets of... of skeletons walking in the foreground and explosions and pyrotechnics. And he was looking at this huge shot that I was doing and this little shot that he was doing. And he was saying, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> mm -hmm. How come Doug is having all the fun? Um, I did uh, I did a lot of stuff in the battle. I did stuff in um, kind of all over the film. I think the, uh, the first stuff I shot was, I think the giant fork going at Bruce Campbell's butt in the, uh, mm -hmm. in the, the mill sequence. One... <laughs> Once watching uh, Shaun of the Dead with the listen and listening to the commentary to that, and there's a sequence in Shaun of the Dead where he's getting ready for work and they do this montage like these little right. snaps, in. yeah. Yep. And and I was thinking that's really cool. And when I was watching the film a second time with the commentary, they said there our inspiration for this was the blacksmith scene from Army of Darkness, which was done with all these snap zooms. I said I was by myself, but I thought, wait a minute, I directed that. Yeah. And and that like has become partly considered like Edgar Wright's style. So what is, what does that say? What I did, and I should be very specific, was at Sam's direction. I mean, we I storyboarded it. He was the one that very was very specific about how to do the snap zoom. So I was executing his vision. There's a lot of me in that movie. There's a lot of ideas that I presented, and as with 
all of the films I did with Sam in the future. Uh, I'm not sure I can remember which are which at this point, um, this many years later. But yeah, so the work I did was really spread throughout the out the film. Mostly it was stuff that didn't involve the main unit, but I I, I think I did a couple of shots with Bruce there. Later, I would work with Bruce when I was a main unit director. I got to work with him a lot. Uh, was it intimidating to sort of your first, second unit directing job? You're dealing with so many extras and, you know, pyrotechnics and all of that. Was that intimidating for you or did you sort of fall into it pretty easily? It was intimidating. It was a kind of thing like the night before I was going to do it for the first time, my wife and I had actually gone to see Thelma and Louise, which it was mm. out in theaters at the time. Just as the film was starting, Thelma and Louise were driving off to begin their road trip. It occurred to me that the next day I was going to have to walk on set for the first time and, and pretend like I knew what I was doing. And that was the moment I started to feel nervous. When I was on set, I not so much. I, I actually really found that I liked the pressure of being on set. And there's something quirky in my personality that when other people are stressed, I become very calm. And I just kind of, I thrived under under those conditions, which was a surprise to me. And the other thing that was a surprise to me is I found I really liked working with actors. And I'm not an actor myself. Uh, I never have acted and never intend to act, but I found I really loved working with actors. I learned a lot very quickly. I think one of the first lessons I learned was when I was doing that shot of the fork going at Bruce's butt. We had an oversized fork that was mounted in front of the camera and we were pushing it on the dolly towards him, towards well, towards the double. We didn't have a lot of length for the shot. It's very short in the film now. Uh, because And then I had to slow down so we didn't run the camera off the tracks. And I remember afterwards the DP was Bill Pope said, mm-hmm. why didn't you just run the camera off the tracks? And I said, well, because it would have shaken and it would have looked terrible. He said, yes, but we would have gotten three frames more of that shot because we're going to cut it when it jars anyways. You know, we can't use it, but we can't use it when it slows down either. So just push it until you, you know, just run it off the track, get as much footage out of it. And I, it was one of those moments like, uh, of course, I mm. should have done that. And it got me moving down the path of thinking about directing from an editing standpoint. I learned that lesson well, and and I found it was very useful when we'd be doing things like when we were intending to to tie two different sets together by doing a whip pan from one to another, where I just whip pan off so that we were looking at the craft service table, because I knew that as soon as the image was blurred, we would be cutting. Mm -hmm. And I occasionally had deep pieces that said, if the camera's facing that way, I'm going to light that part of the set. I said, we don't have time. I promise you we're not going to use it. He said, I've been burned too many times. And I said, okay, you stand over there and, and hold a sign that says, don't use this. Because so that you know when the camera lands there, we're not going to use it. He said, but don't make me take the time to light that part of the set. I promise I'm not going to use it. I'm just going to use this part. Just quick transition. Alan, to another Sam Raimi film that you were the second unit director on, 2002's Spider-Man. How did mm-hmm. that how how did that come to pass? Sam and I had uh, hadn't worked together for a couple of years, um, and I was actually asked by one of my best friends, Jeff Lynch, who when I told you about the the group of high school students that were making films together uh, that all went to wed, uh, Jeff Lynch was one of my classmates from Santa Barbara mm-hmm. High, uh, and he later became Sam Raimi's kind of head of story for a lot of his projects. And, and Jeff asked if I would come to help out on Spider-Man. Uh, and then you know, so I was storyboarding on that. 
Uh, and at some point, Sam just asked if I would do the second unit. Uh, yeah. And I was one of five people, I think. And Jeff Lynch was, was another one. But Jeff and I were the only two that got credit. Were you doing mainly action stuff or just like? Yeah, a lot of action stuff and a lot of inserts. Um, I did. I actually shot the, the first stuff with Spider-Man as Spider-Man once he has his fans. Really? That, that the, whole montage? The montage, the, the armored car robbery, the the uh, the robbery of the Korean deli. Uh, that, yeah. that whole montage, uh, I did most of that. That's iconic work. It. Um, there was a number of, of shots that I was told not. Well, I was, for, well, we shot in second unit a bunch of inserts for the scene where Peter Parker gets bitten by the spider. Mm-hmm. And we were shooting that at the Natural History Museum here in Los Angeles. And the producer had told me we absolutely couldn't shoot anything that wasn't boarded because the schedule was so tight. Mm-hmm. When I got there, I said, I realized there was a shot. I hadn't storyboarded that sequence, and I realized there was a shot missing that we had to get. So I, I went against my orders and I shot it. And it was an up. It was just a plate. It was an upshot of like dropping down from the pillar, intended to have the spider coming at camera. Because I mm. thought before the spider bites Peter, we're going to want to see it coming at us, and it wasn't planned. It wasn't in the boards. And that shot is the very first shot that I saw when I first saw the trailer for Spider Man. And it's in, I think, every single trailer for for that movie. That's crazy to us because uh, we are huge Spider-Man fans. But um, did you shoot any of the ending fight? I don't believe that I did. The other thing that that you should know, Spider-Man is the only film that I've ever been fired from. Whoa. Is this a scandal? Or eh, Yeah. I mean, it was at the time... When it happened, I got called by Laura Ziskin and the mm-hmm. the who was the producer, um, the first AD. Everybody basically told me you were getting fired because the studio was trying to control Sam. They can't fire mm-hmm. Sam, so they shot the person standing next to him. If they saw me as his, I guess, what I was told, they considered the studio considered you as right hand man, so that by firing you. They thought they could control Sam. I'm not sure why they thought that was even a good idea to control Sam. Sam was doing a great job. That's what I was told. But I also at the time thought, well, if I had done my job better, or if I even just had played the political game better, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, mm-hmm. So somehow I, I wanted to own it and say, well, that's my responsibility. So I actually wasn't there when they shot the climax of the oh, film. Oh, I see. How far along into production did they... Did, oh, we, did, we did were, this obviously we had been shooting for some time because I'd shot um I, I shot a number of sequences already. Then when the film finally came out, I went to see it. I was because they said basically I was shooting action that the action I was shooting wouldn't work. And I think one of the reasons they thought that is because Sam and I had this notion that we wanted to do things in longer takes. At that time, especially at Sony, it's like American filmmakers had just discovered Hong Kong movies, something that I'd actually been, it's a territory I'd been mining for a long time. If, if you look at the pilot episodes of Hercules or Xena, uh, you can see the, the influence I had from, from Hong Kong cinema. Sony had just done Charlie's Angels, which was, was shot in very much a Hong Kong style with a lot of quick cutting. And Sam and I wanted to try to do something that was a little more dialectic. Office hacking. hacking. 
we wanted to do things in longer shots. So we designed these sequences. But it's like with the, the armored truck robbery, it's done in very few shots. And mm-hmm. because the idea is we wanted to really see Spider-Man be athletic. And it was the first time we were doing CGI human characters. I don't know that if the executives, when they saw the footage, they could figure out how it was going to fit together and how it right. was going to look when you put the CGI character into it. When I did finally go to see the film, I, I realized that they used everything that I shot. They didn't reshoot anything. And then I got really angry. Mm. <laughs> like I was willing to say, okay, I just didn't do my job correctly, but they used everything. Mm. I didn't reshoot a single sequence that I did. So then, then I got annoyed. To take the, the conversation to perhaps a less sore subject, um, <laughs> uh, the, the last Sam Raimi movie that uh, I, I really want to talk about because it's one of my favorite movies uh, is The Quick and the Dead. And you mm-hmm. did storyboards for that. And uh, what what was that like? Uh, that was great. Um, I, I Yes, I storyboarded every single shot in that movie back in wow. those days. Most of the time, I was the only storyboard artist on a film, but... Uh, yes, I got to I got to storyboard every single shot in that film, and I would have directed Second Unit on it, except at the same time they had offered me the opportunity to do Main Unit on the one of the Hercules TV movies. Mm-hmm. So I there were two jobs I didn't get to do. One was storyboard Braveheart, which I, had been offered to me, but then but I think I, I had a Second Unit directing job I, that I had to take instead. And then doing second unit and quick in the deck is how fun would it have been to do a Western like that? I just would have loved mm-hmm. it. But I had the opportunity to direct main unit at that time. So I had to, I had to take that. But it, yeah, that was, that was great. And I've worked with Sam on other projects uh, since then. I was just working on Sam with Sam on a picture that he is currently doing that I can't name, but you may probably know it already. So about your work in storyboards, I know it's it's unheard of for one artist to be tasked with doing every shot of a film like you just described. So when you're doing every shot of a film, what level of detail are you using? And also like what was your chosen medium and how long would it take you to do one? And just all, all about your process. The art of storyboarding is the art of saying as much as poss- possible with as few lines as possible. Well, it is to me. My process is generally I do a rough version of the entire sequence before I do any finished drawing. 95% of the time, I don't get a chance to finish the drawings and make them look pretty because my roughs are clear enough that when I present them, they say, these are fine, these are very legible, move on to the next sequence. Previously, I worked in just in felt pen because I wanted to draw boards that would survive reproduction. Uh, you know, when I started out, we Xeroxed everything, photocopied everything. And if you did pencil shading on your storyboards, it would just go to shit when, by the mm-hmm. time it, it was seen on set. And being seen on set was where it was important. We are not doing comic books. We're not doing finished works of art. The, the sketch is to, to determine what the shot's going to be. So having the clarity of of the shot, the composition, the function of the shot, the movement of the camera within the shot, all the information that you need to convey to every department, what's going to be in the shot so they can all do their job well. The most important part of storyboarding can be done without a lot of drawing experience. If you can do stick figures and draw arrows, that's 90% of the job. However, the other, the the anatomy and perspective and that stuff is what you need to know in order to get somebody to hire you in the first place because mm. they generally don't hire people if all they can draw is stick figures. But if you don't know 
if you're not an artist and you're going to do a film, it's still worthwhile doing storyboards. You should see some of Steven Spielberg's sketches. I have one here somewhere that he drew when we were working on BFG and he, he drew it in my sketchbook. At, uh, they're like a child's drawing, but they're clear. They're, you, mm-hmm. you, you know what, what he wants. So something that caught my eye while looking through your IMDb was one of your earliest credits was on the Black Cauldron as Mm -hmm. additional story contributions. And as I'm sure you know, the Black Cauldron has something of like a a cursed release because they said it it was it was so so crazy dark for a Disney film and that it was thus heavily edited. And I was wondering if you if you saw the the or ever knew of the the dark version hidden from the world. Well, I'll tell you, the, the version that came out was not nearly as dark as the one we wanted to do. But I don't know if I would use, actually use the word dark. I would just say substantive. The, <laughs> I was very excited when we had the opportunity to work on, on Black Cauldron, when I had the opportunity to work on Black Cauldron. I had read the Lloyd Alexander books when I was in high school, and I was a fan of them. And I felt like it was it, the material could have been a breakthrough film, especially you have to understand at the time when I started at Disney was 1977. It was the year Star Wars came out. John Musker, Brad Bird, Jerry Reese, uh, Daryl Van Sitters and uh, Harry Sabin and I all went to the Grauman's Chinese Theater the second weekend that Star Wars was out and we watched it. It was a very exciting time to be starting your career in the film business because you felt like the rules just changed. And it was also, it was the first time that you, wherever you went, people were talking about it on street corners and coffee shops. It Mm -hmm. was a phenomenon. But it also made us all feel like we've got to up our game. We've got to do something that can reach a bigger audience. So the notion that we can make an animated film that wasn't just for children was very prevalent in, in a lot of the younger people who are working at the studio and a lot of our, our hearts and minds. And the source material seemed like it lent itself. So we really wanted to do a film that wasn't just a story about good versus evil, but about this kid that had aspirations, made mistakes, and redeemed himself. So there was a different version of the, the version that I was working on with um, a guy named Pete Young, who's another story artist, and uh, Vance Carey, an old-timer, was working on it. A lot of people contributed to that. And even uh, John Musker and Ron Clemens ended up joining the story department there before they started directing. And all of us together were working to try to make this a a film with more substance to it. And I believe we were succeeding. Uh, And then um, some people came into power that were sort of in between uh, like the Wooly Reitherman era and and the new Renaissance era that just said, nope, this is a story of good versus evil, and, and it's God and the devil, and you know, and the good guys are just going to be nice, and the bad guys are going to be mean. So not what you wanted. Not basically. what we wanted at all. <laughs> uh, and and in truth, that was another thing that facilitated my decision to, to leave Disney when I did, mm-hmm. to move on, because I felt like it was going to be heartbreaking to, to watch that uh, crumble. I saw the film when it was first released. I have not seen it since then, and I... I recently did an interview about that, talking about the, the history and the progress of, of Black Cauldron. And I feel like I should watch it again. And maybe I would judge it differently now. Mm-hmm. I also feel like the source material deserves a second look. And, and I hope that Disney will do another version of it. They were talking about doing a live action version. And I think it, I think it's worth doing. I think there is a better version of that story to be had. 
and a potential franchise to be had from the Lloyd Alexander source material. So speaking of live action movies, you've also, in addition to being a storyboard artist, you've worked as head of story at the third floor. Mm -hmm. And we were wondering if you could sort of explain what your role is there, what exactly a head of story does, and just the the work that you do on movies there. Well, the third floor primarily does pre-visualization for movies, although they do a lot of other kinds of visualization. They do a lot of post-visualization as well now. So they're just, they just describe themselves as a visualization company. Previs is mostly considered computer animation, but in truth, mm-hmm. anything that helps you visualize a film beforehand is pre-visualization. Uh, so the third floor, one of the things that makes it different than some other previous companies is that they consider storyboards to be part of the process, to be to be pre-visualization. And there are projects that we do through the third floor that are only done in storyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I run the, that department. And so I manage other storyboard artists that are working on, although for me managing, it's just I hire good people and stay out of their way. That's my management style normally. But sometimes uh, I will be leading a team of, of artists on other films. Being the lead the lead artist, meaning generally what that means is they give me the, the sequences that have the most problems to try to solve. Uh, but also at the third floor, we uh, have started this original content initiative. So I am also supervising uh, the development of new material. So we started this startup inside the third floor called Story Attic, and you can actually see our work at storyattic.com. And what we're doing is we are creating a lot of short form content as digital comics now as a way of testing out material. Mm -hmm. My philosophy about creating original content is that you create a lot of content uh, and that you don't just come up with an idea for a screenplay and spend three years of your life polishing it. I think it's important to learn how to polish work and make it as good as possible. But I think you're much better off if you spend, if you do 10 projects a year rather than one project every 10 years. So the idea of what we're doing with Story Attic is we are we are creating a lot of content in an inexpensive form and the stuff that works, we grow that. And so we'll go from doing uh, digital comics to doing animatics and then eventually to doing full animation. The company has aspirations and, and is currently moving into finals animation now. Uh, by the way, and I should just put a plug in here, uh, Story Attic features a digital comics format called Scroll On, which I invented and patented. Very cool. So uh, as someone who doesn't know that much about Previs, say when you did Previs for the Avengers, like how 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 developed are these are these visuals? Very. Very. Uh, very, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, we... Back in back in the seventies, in the pre Spielberg Lucas era, directors needed to be generalists. They needed to like know a little bit of everything and have good managerial skills to pull it all together. Spielberg and Lucas, when they came along, it, it ushered in the era of um, the fanboy directors. These were people that grew up on movies and were passionate about movies and had an encyclopedic knowledge of what had come before. And now I feel like we are in the area of that what, what I call compartmentalized filmmaking, where things are broken up into, into areas of uh, complexity. Mm-hmm. But the it is pretty amazing if you watch some of the third floor's 
reels. Yeah, I think that they're available on the third floor website. You can see how close the previous uh, is followed by the filmmakers. A lot of times it is given directly to the second unit directors to to execute. Uh, now, when I say that, that's not to say that the main unit director doesn't have their hands all over it because they are involved. They work with the previous company to plot the films out. But if you're working on something like a Marvel film, it is so complicated and there's so many moving parts and they're so expensive that they plan out the action scenes very carefully. Mm-hmm. And, and for that reason, many times when the previous is finalized by the director and the producers, it's executed in that manner. And then it, it's usually edited down later. But the whole idea of doing previs is that you throw out less because you're planning it more carefully up front. So you you just mentioned Sp- Steven Spielberg, and you mm-hmm. previously mentioned the BFG, and I was just wondering, uh, what's it like to make storyboards for Steven Spielberg? Cause, and, ha- uh, and have him scribble in your notebook. Yeah. That was great. Um, I, I worked with uh, Steven on two projects now. I did BFG and uh, Ready Player One. With Whoa. Him. And then also did a little bit of work on a project with he and Tom Hanks uh, that they're doing for Apple TV, a World War II project. Yeah, I actually got to meet Tom Hanks for the first time and shake his hand a month before he was diagnosed with coronavirus. He was like the first celebrity. But uh, uh, Spielberg, yeah, I, you know, I, I became really good friends with uh, Rick Carter, uh, who was a production designer on BFG. And Rick Carter had also been the production designer on Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park previously was the only film that that I actively pursued. I wanted to work on that. And I put together samples of my work and I mailed them to Rick Carter. And I got a very nice rejection letter from him. And then so when I got to know Rick when I was working with him on BFG, uh, I told him this story. I think he was embarrassed that he didn't hire me. But I'll tell you, the most important thing I believe about working with people like Steven Spielberg, or really, from my standpoint, the secret to my success, such as it is, I never tried to figure out what Steven Spielberg wanted, no more than I tried to figure out what Sam Raimi would want or a first-time director would want. My brain doesn't work that way. I always think what the story wants. Mm. That is my dictate. I always treat my job as if I work for the story. Now, if I'm told to do something that I think violates the story, you know, then I just it becomes a drawing exercise to me. I'll do the best job I can with it, but I always feel my obligation is to say what I think will benefit the story. And I realized uh, when we were on BFG that at, at some point I felt like I was the only person that was thinking that way. Everybody else was trying to second guess what he wanted. And I think that does that was doing Stephen a disservice and would do any director that you're working for a disservice because if it's an idea he could come up with himself, he'll come up with it himself. There were many times when I would preface ideas that I had by saying, can I tell you something that you may hate? And Stephen would, every time I did that, he'd get this big grin on his face because he knew I was going to tell him something he hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. And I'd say half of the time I did that, he said, I'm not going to do that, and here's why. And he had a reason for it, which you know, I could accept and move on. The other half of the time, it became something that he thought, that's great. That's, that's you know, that is taking it in a, a, the direction it should go in. Uh, and he is enough of a, of a visionary that he, 
he loves doing something that he hasn't done before. Mm-hmm. So I had a very good uh, time uh, working with him. I had I enjoyed a very good working relationship. So just to bring up the uh, one of the last few big movies that we're going to talk about here, um, you've worked on uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters and Godzilla vs. Kong. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were just wondering, and I, I've seen a bunch of your storyboards and some of them are just like completely what is in the movie. And I was wondering, what is, is there a difference in uh, process when you're working on something as the budgets increase and as the, you know, amount of vfx houses working on it increases or is it as you say just because you're um working just with stories it's just sort of the same process mostly well it's always important if you're going to be a a storyboard artist there are three aspects to the job there's drawing there's storytelling and there's filmmaking and you need to study all three of those things so even though story is is my main guiding uh, light in all of this. You also need to know how to actually make films and what mm. shots you can get, and what shots you can't get. You have to temper everything with that. So the interesting thing about working on big budget films is that for some reason, the higher the budget, the more restrictions you have. The more, the higher the budget the film, the more you hear, we can't afford that. And on lower budget films, you, everybody knows that there's not a lot of money. So I found license like, well, I have an idea. I don't know if we can do it. And the producers would usually say, well, tell us what it is and let us see if we can figure out a way to give it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they had to be clever. They were they wanted to be smart enough to come up with a way of making something look really good on a low budget. When you're on a big budget film, it's like everybody expects the budget to get out of control. So they're just saying no right away right. to things. So Keeping the reins on the big ship. Yeah. But the here's another important secret um if the story works it'll be less expensive to make and it'll be better Mm -hmm. when the story doesn't work you start throwing things at it that costs a lot of money to try to to distract people if you can tell a story that's just a the reason that is is because if the story works you're usually telling a story about what's going on with the character Mm -hmm. and then so godzilla destroying the city behind you is incidental to it or it's it's part of the you know, the, it's part of the bigger picture, but the entertainment value is in the human story of what um, of the people that are in the middle of this this huge event. So the more you can keep it focused on story, the more cost effective the final product is going to be. The better it's going to be, and the easier it's going to be to film. The last one of your early credits that uh, I was curious about was uh, the Lost Boys. And yeah. how you are a visual effects design consultant. Am I? So you're telling me these credits that I have like that and like on uh, the Black Cauldron. I, I didn't remember that those were my credits. Uh, in those days of Lost Boys, uh, I had I worked with a lot of visual effects companies. Uh, and one of them was a company called DreamQuest. I was working with on Lost Boys with, I believe it was Eric Brevig and Hoyt Yateman with the two you guys, Eric is still actually both of those guys are, are friends of mine. They both have been directors uh, in their own right. Um, but yes, we were working on Lost Boys. Uh, I had in the same way that I got hired on Army of Darkness to the visual effects company in Introvision. I got hired to work on Lost Boys to the visual effects company specifically to to draw sequences that had shots they were going to have to create. So they brought me into the process to work with uh with Eric Brevik and um, uh, Joel Schumacher. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, what, how how was Joel Schumacher? Because he seems like he was an interesting guy. He re- he he liked to make visual effects films without visual effects in them, if at, at all possible. Uh, I had very little interactions with him. Uh, if you remind me, though, I'll tell you uh, this was a great to a story about working on Total Recall. Also, there, but on this, I do remember going to the set over at Warner Brothers when they were shooting Lost Boys and having these storyboards. Uh, and we were breaking for lunch, and Eric said to, to Joel, Can we, can you look at these? And he said, Do I have to do it now? And Eric said, Well, we're shooting this first up after lunch, so yeah, kind of you do. Uh, I said, Okay, that, that was my, my memory of it. So we showed him the boards and he approved them and we went ahead. That was my interaction with him. What was your time on Total Recall? Total Recall is also brought in through Dream Quest, working with Eric Brebig, uh, with uh, the director, help me out, who the director that did Total Recall. Uh, I don't know why I'm not remembering. Paul, Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven, yes, thank you. Of the RoboCop fame. Of RoboCop yes. fame, yes. Baby and movie. Showgirls. And <laughs> I haven't seen Showgirls, <laughs> but um, I, he also did Soldier of Orange, which is a great film. Yeah, so we went to show storyboards to Paul Verhoeven, and I remember, I can't remember what the boards were, but I just remember him looking at him and he going, yes, but you wouldn't do it that way, would you? And us going, how do we respond to that? Uh, no, of course you wouldn't do that way. This was the, these were the joke boards. Where are the real boards? Oh, oh, we must have left them behind. We'll bring those tomorrow. Well, Trent, do you think it's um... time for the the big Kahuna final question? Yeah, I think it's time. So, what was the last great film you watched? And it can be a rewatch or a first time viewing. I have to say, I really did enjoy uh, Shaun of the Dead. We spoke about that uh, earlier. I was just surprised at what a touching. A uh, romantic comedy. It was with zombies, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'll also say I really loved um, second season and the first season of The Boys. That mm-hmm. I just watched. Mm-hmm. I had actually worked on um, a presentation for a film version of that that was going to be directed by Adam McKay. Adam McKay. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. We did uh, Talladega Nights. And, yeah. Uh, the big short yes uh and vice yeah uh yes we were going to uh, he wanted to do this uh and i read a bunch of the comics at that time and i wasn't a big fan of the comics uh, but sony said nobody would want to see an r-rated superhero movie this was before deadpool came out so mm. uh that was their their call at that time uh, and one of the things that I, I guess one of the reasons I was so impressed by it is because I felt like the series really did really maximize the material. Um, and I, I think that the series is better than the source material. And I, I don't say that about a lot of things, but I feel like they they solved some of the, the main issues that I had with the source material. Um, and I just found it got really engaged. In. Yeah, those are those are great picks. And it. It doesn't hurt that you directly inspired one of them. <laughs> no, listen, I don't want to, but, uh, but I do feel like I have a little piece of it. So uh, I'll take that. Well, Trent, do you want to close us out? Yes. Thank you so much to Doug Leffler for coming on our show. He's worked on such projects as Spider-Man, the Avengers, Godzilla versus Kong, and was the second unit uh, director for our film, uh, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, as well as Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 
Welcome back after the interview. Wasn't that freaking dope? I really enjoyed myself. That was awesome faux shizzle. All right. Enough of the hip hop talk. That was a great interview, I'd say. Trent, no? Yeah, no, it was freaking awesome. Thanks, Doug Leffler, for your time and effort. You're yeah. a really you're a really great man. You're a gentleman and a scholar. If you go to our Instagram page, you'll be able to see Doug graciously showing a storyboard or a set of storyboards. He tried to show us some that he did for Steven Spielberg or some of Steven Spielberg's storyboards, but Yeah, he, he said find once it. he said once while working with Steven Spielberg, uh Steven Spielberg I just feel that they need to use his full name because rarely do I have any stories with him as a character. Steven Spielberg did a little doodle of the shot composition he wanted, and Doug Leffler said that it was very simple, But um, and so we wanted to see it, but he couldn't find it in one of his many storyboard notebooks. But uh, if we ever if we ever get the chance to find it, you'll be the first people in the audience to see it Yeah, if you but- go to our Instagram page. If you go to our Instagram page, you'll see him, you know, just a little screenshot, him holding up his beautiful storyboards, us there with our smiling little faces because we're so blessed with his uh, his company. Presence. And he said that he would email us when and if he found the Spielberg thing, when and if that day comes, we'll put it on our Instagram. So in conclusion, follow us on all social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We are on Google+. Plus. I've never heard of that, and I'm a co-host of the show. But we're, you know, on Spotify. We're not actually. Google Plus does not exist anymore. Cool. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I have a list of demands here that Peter from Legal has laid out. And Parth, can you read them? Yeah, sure. So they say you have to go to the iTunes uh, Apple Podcasts section, find our show, Craft Services, type that in, get there, mm-hmm. scroll all the way down. Then you're going to see star rating system you're gonna give it a five star review you can give i'll let you give a four and a half star wait all right first of all there's no half star reviews on apple podcast okay then you have to give a five star review we recently received our first one star review and did we really yeah it was all five we had 25 one star reviews oh no no excuse we had 25 five star reviews and then we got our 26 and it was a one star review so shout out to that person. You suck. We hate you. Uh, uh, Trent, that might be Peter. You went through all that effort just to say you don't like us? Just don't listen to our show. Come on. Oh, uh, Trent, we didn't even mention this in our opening, but um, the, the listeners don't know this because we are uh, responsible adults releasing our episodes on a weekly basis. Yeah. But uh, Trent and I have not, we've not actually been on call with each other in about almost a month. Yeah. Is that true? We recorded... You know, Parth and I, the, the, the podcast lifestyle will wear you down. And during the month of June, Parth and I both needed to take a little vacation. So we got all of our episodes done beforehand. So we could not think about movies for like a month. Well, I guess we probably both watched several films during this time. But not having yeah. to dis- not having to discuss and analyze them was really kind of a blessing. With that being said... But we are back I was going to say, should we permanently, because, you know, destroy the show, being how much we enjoyed our time Ooh, on. I did, I did enjoy not, hmm. But maybe this is sort of a lucky charm situation, where we wouldn't enjoy the time off. We wouldn't enjoy the marshmallows, unless we had all that gross. I guess that's true. 
cereal laying around. Good, good way to bring it all back to the to the beginning. Yeah, if you've listened to all hour of this episode, uh, bless your soul, and you're the only person who gets that uh, this full circle joke. Um, what comes next? I don't. I don't even. Next know. week. Next week we are uh, going to be discussing Army of Darkness. It's just going to be Trent and I. Uh, yeah. We're going to have a good time. And then maybe the week after that, maybe something fun is coming. Maybe. No, I don't know. Maybe it's something we actually have no idea what we're doing, but we know we're doing a dis- uh, an in-person recording. Uh, we still haven't decided on the topic, um, but maybe this is all planned out, actually. Yeah, we said we wanted to be, quote, something fun and something that isn't a standard discussion. So maybe it'll be a ranking Maybe it'll just be a roundtable conversation. Maybe Parth and I will fight shirtless, and you guys will just hear the audio from that. It'll just be a lot of meat slapping together. Anyways, uh, I I think that's enough of that. Yeah, no, but the 51st episode is basically as big of a deal as the 50th. So I guess come back next week if you want. But if you don't... Well, now now it's all the lead up to the 100th. Yeah, dude. This was all set up. Uh, I feel like our next goal is so far away. Well, we won't... It just on our current schedule, we won't get there for like a year. Like 50 Yeah, weeks. I think a little bit less, but yeah. We'll be old men. Yeah. We'll be 21 years of age. We'll be clinking brews. All right, I think it's... Okay. Bart said, mention of alcohol on my family-friendly podcast? No, thank Not you. happening. Not Parth, happening. We are, my we parents listen ra- to this. We are rated explicit, which I like. Yeah. Because we can't wait. Parth, say it. Say a bad word. Frick. All right. Well, uh, see you next week, listeners. Bye, guys. Follow us on all social media. Love us, please. We need the attention. Shower us with love and affection. Shower with us in general. No one in a fr- a sane state of mind starts a pod. So clearly, Parth and I aren't doing too hot, and we need your help. Insane in the membrane. That's us. Insane in the brain. All right, that's enough of that.